I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Mr. P here. I'm the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips and get ready for the lesson. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um... (laughs) Chart music. (laughs) Chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and by my side today are Simon Price. Hello. And Sarah B. Hello. Oh, it's been a wild chap. So why don't I just lie on the floor and allow you to spill all that Pop and interesting stuff all <laughs> over there. Um, well, well, the rules do allow us to do that now. So, uh, yes. the rules allow us to do anything we want. Yeah. What I want to do is 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 none of that if it involves being near other people. Been a while since you've been on, Sarah. About seven months. You must have loads to talk about. Loads and loads. Go on then. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck all, mate. Absolutely. Oh, bugger all. Yeah, I've been eating still. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been out, but I haven't like done stuff. Yeah. All restrictions lifted. You can do anything you fucking want. It's your world, baby. Mm. And um, taste that freedom. Yeah. So yeah. AKA, we're on our fucking own. Yes. Yeah. Society yes. has at this point been ceded to uh, the most robust twats, mm. people who break into uh, football games and you know stick flares up their asses in. <laughs> in Leicester yes. Square um, and you know and also people who don't have any choice but to go out and deal with those people yeah. you have to try and claw back some kind of positivity from somewhere and you know I've just been on a bus this morning and um, <gasps> you know most people were still wearing masks even though they don't have to yeah. but yeah it doesn't really work like that like oh just be careful use your common sense a lot of people don't have any common sense <laughs> they no. just don't they're just missing it. And <laughs> some things have to come from the top and they have to filter down like that. And it would have been so easy to just say, oh, you can do what you want, but let's keep the masks on. We've all got them now. Let's get our money's worth. Yeah. And, you know, um, you can get fun ones with leopard print on and, you know, 
But uh, there you go. That's yeah. the government that we have, unfortunately. The only one positive thing about all of this is that we finally got a generation gap back again, haven't we? Yeah. Which is nice. <laughs> back in the day, when you wanted to alienate and scare the older generation, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to go some lengths. You'd have to have a Mohican or a, a swastika T-shirt or something. Nowadays, you just get on a bus without a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Last night, I was in central london for reasons i'm going to come on to very pop and very interesting reasons as well but um uh, having done the pop and interesting thing that i'll come on to my wife and i decided to go for uh, a little late night drink a quiet late night drink we thought a little nightcap in uh, the soho arts club on frith street in soho which 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 we love and i suppose i should have seen the warning signs when the security guy made us wait outside for other people to leave but i thought no they're just being sensible they've obviously only got about 12 people in there yeah you know they're still distancing i thought fine fine we'll wait so we walked down the stairs and there's this sort of big soundproof door at the bottom. You push your way through. And suddenly, we're in this fucking sweating, seething mayhem of a disco. Of, like, oh. loads of very young Shit. people going nuts, hugging each other, leaping around, dancing to Earth, Wind and Fire and the Eurythmics. Just old music. Basically, stuff that to them is hilarious because mm. it's so old, you know. Um, yeah. And I got really freaked out, partly because I wasn't psyched up. Yeah. I wasn't psyched up for it. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm going to have to psych myself up for being in a disco pretty soon anyway, because my here's the plug alternative 80s night spellbound in Brighton is is relaunching. Nature is healing. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but just to sort of walk down these steps in Soho for what we thought was going to be a nice little rum and coke before bed, and now boom, suddenly it's fucking Studio 54 in there, you know, and it's just fucking. <laughs> I really freaked out, and also, yeah, I mean, I've never felt quite such an old man among a bunch of young people because it's, it's been a while since I've been in that kind of environment yeah. I couldn't handle it and I ended up just sort of not drinking our drink and I just had to sort of say look I'm sorry but we've got to go mm. I was surprised at how freaked out I was I thought oh come on I'm going to be fine with yeah. this the thing is we've we've jacked up our brains to into survival mode and it's not easy to step that down again no. a lot of anxiety it's like you can drill down and recognise that it's not based in anything mm. and you can you know let it dissipate but you can't with this because like you no. can't if, if you're anything like me like i i can't afford to get long covid i just can't my health is on its ass already i just can't afford to Mm. if you are an anxious person to begin with then this just jacks it right right up and like i've tried to you know um i i wanted to go to the seaside for a couple of days and i couldn't do it because i did a little dry run and i went on the overground and i went to barnard castle for half an hour (laughs) i had a little (laughs) i tested my brain by going to yeah but i just i i couldn't hack it after i i was okay for a bit my energy bar was was full when i left the house and then by the time i was three stops from home on the way back i was just like nope 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 and you feel a bit foolish about it but it's like no that's kind of normal and it, it it is weird to me like how many people are fine with like being in crowds and stuff and being mm. out and about and it's like I just I, I mean good for them and I'm not saying they are all yeah. the robust twats that I was talking about but if you're sort of physically mentally or, or emotionally kind of not that tough yeah. you're going to start sort of f- falling behind in a certain way you know yeah. I ended up talking to one of the, uh, the the younger generation the other night about this and she says oh you know I've been to clubs and all that kind of stuff and I'm going you're fucking mad mm. what the fuck is wrong with you <laughs> she says oh I've had I've had one jab and I said, oh, well, that's like us having sex and me saying, no, don't worry, I'm going to put on half a Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really need to work on my chat-up lines. It's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> 
How would that work? <laughs> yeah, is it, is it half long ways or you know width ways? And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's like which way would a dog wear trousers? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, pop things, yes. interesting yes. things. Yes, yes. Well, now then, um, yeah, I spent some of yesterday evening socialising, rubbing shoulders with some pop stars uh, who we've <sighs> talked about at considerable length on a previous chart music. B. A. Robertson, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Sparks. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um it was very exciting. Basically, um I did my first bit of DJing for eighteen months uh last night. Um it was the West End premiere Fuck. of the amazing documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Mm. I've I've done quite a bit of work with Sparks over the years, interviewing them and stuff like that, writing biogs and booklets. The flint to their sparks, if yes, you Yes, exactly. That's how I like to think of myself very much. Mm. And I've done a bit of work with Edgar Wright the director of the film, in terms of uh, writing the production notes um, that get sent to all the sort of people who go to Sundance and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I've, I've kind of been on the outskirts of this whole project. Mm. But yeah, I was I was asked to DJ the premiere uh, in the West End last night. Cool. Yeah, I was DJing in this sort of pop-up thing in the cinema bar run by Spiritland, who are this sort of audiophile collective who have a fancy bar in King's Cross and another one in the Royal Festival Hall. And they're they're good people Mm. and, you know, they put on good events. And I was honoured to be asked. But the whole experience of getting a vinyl crate, because it was a vinyl-only set, and packing it and, you know, get my set list ideas together and all that, it was quite nerve-tingling after such a long time. Not necessarily for sort of COVID reasons, but just the adrenaline rush of, is it going to go okay? Am I going to play the right songs? Will, Will I have a technical breakdown and all that kind of shit? And also, I'm out of practice of playing vinyl anyway mm. in, in dj terms um i've you know been using laptops for quite a while but yeah it, it wasn't a proper red carpet premiere as such there was only one paparazzo outside that I saw. <laughs> um but um tv's katie puckrick and radio's katie puckrick i should say as well was there and she came over to say hi yeah. and i met the director edgar wright I hadn't actually met him before who's um, work i'm a big fan of you know spaced and hot furs and Shaun of the dead baby driver all of that mm-hmm. so it was great to meet him but then ron and russell mail themselves came along um Ooh. Just as I was playing Looks, 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 uh, which is, if you don't know, it's a prohibition jazz number from their album Indiscreet. It's brilliant. And uh, and Ron just said, what's this old crap? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put some fucking Oasis on. <laughs> and Russell goes, retro rubbish. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was great. And, and we talked about shoes and we talked about the Cannes Film Festival, as you do. And they yeah. posed for a photo with me and the missus. Um, and I, oh, I just love those guys so much. I unfortunately uh, wasn't able to get them to say bummer no Um, i know i know but i thought about it i i'm pretty sure the words bummer and dog exist in their oeuvre and we can just edit it together somehow um but yeah um some of my dj selections were a little mischievous um i followed this town it big enough for both of us with sugar baby love by the rubettes which is the record which prevented sparks from reaching number one and they're still a little bitter about it the shut up of your face to their vienna exactly yeah 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 (laughs) and i played some pet shop boys right who get a bit of needle in the film for never acknowledging their debt to sparks it's quite funny Uh. they obviously wouldn't be interviewed for it uh, but somebody else talks about a time they did sort of mention sparks to psbs and uh, neil tennant just said you're very naughty (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so that was my popping interesting fun last night in, in Soho. That's pretty good. Nothing's happened from this end, just, just usual shit. Start doing pub quizzes again. Oh, how's that been going? Weird, weird. I've, I've got two on the go at the minute. One's in uh, Kimbler on the outskirts of town in a local pub, and the other one's in a bit near the centre of town, and people from all over Knotts usually come to that one. The one in Kimbler is absolutely fine. People are turning up. It's all good. One in town, no fuckers turning up. Because oh. mm. it's town. People staying away from town because it's, really? it's full of bellends without masks on and everything. Yeah. Mm. Central Brighton has been pretty fucking wild ever since unlocking. Mm. And Central London last night. You know what? Before I ventured into London last night, which, by the way, is my first visit to London for you know nearly two years, which is kind of weird. Jesus. In yeah. Um, but I, I had been wondering how this whole thing would have affected the nightclub sector. And I put myself in the place of... I mean, obviously, I'm a nightclub promoter, but I'm not a venue owner. And I mm. thought venue owners would be absolutely shitting it that a whole generation would have come through and broken the habit. They haven't got that sort of yeah. um, rite of passage of, you know, you hit 18 or, let's be honest, probably 17, and off you go to a nightclub. And that, that maybe that, you know, just, you know, nightclubs might might be for the dumper. Uh, but do you know what? Last night, Thursday no. night, it, uh, it was, as uh, recording this on a Friday, central London was absolutely just fucking heaving with mm. young people, I guess sort of student-age people. Yeah. Because midweek nights in London are, you know, where venues traditionally put on cheapo nights for, for students. It's fucking... Yeah. You, you wouldn't think there'd ever been a pandemic and that, you know, just from, you know, nature is healing from the point of view of uh, the nightclub economy, which mm. I suppose is kind of reassuring and good luck to them. Mm. But yeah. People that age always want to get pissed after chucking out time and try and cop off with each other. Yeah, but I thought that they'd found different ways of doing it now, whether it's, you know, having a massive illegal rave in a field or just going to somebody's house. But if there is a group of people I'd like to rub up against at the moment, it's the brand new batch of Pulp Craig's Patreons who have shoved some money down our G-string this month. And that list includes, in the $5 section, Sarah McVeigh, Jeffrey S. Dixon, Andy Hollis, Justin Davis, Mark Symes, Mark Boyle, Owen Marriott, Joe O'Donnell, Matthew Grenham, William Wright, Jim Prentice, Mark Harrison, Lizzie, David Gilhule, Michelle Stevens, Steve Mishkin, and Louise Duke. Thank you, babies. Legends, a lot of I want to lick and touch you all. (laughs) And in the $3 section, we have Burkles, Aidan Taylor, Peter Hammerson, Nicholas McCardle, and Edinburgh Castle rock expert, (laughs) Tony C. (laughs) And Matt Varel, thank you so much, because you whacked it up just a little bit more didn't you Mm. bless you and of course as well as getting episodes of chart music in full without adverts ages before the rest of you the pop craze patron people have been a friggin and a rigging this week's chart music top 10 shall we chaps hit the fucking music We've said goodbye to Tandori Elephant, Jesus Price, Nolan Tentacle Porn, CFAX Data Blast, and Taylor Parks' 20 Romantic Moments, which means one up, four down, four new entries, and one re-entry. A drop of nine places from number two to number ten for fuck's 
Babies. <laughs> First new entry in at number nine, the pig people of Charlesmore. <laughs> Another new entry this time at number eight, Friar David. Yes. Down one place from number six to number seven, rock expert David Stubbs. <laughs> And it's a two-place drop from number four to number six. For here comes Jism. Yes, keep on in there. Into the top five and thrusting his way back into the charts, Jeff Sachs. Come on, Jeff. Last week's number five. This week's number four. Bummer dog. Into the top three and last week's number one has finally fallen. The bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Straight in at number two, sharks piss fire, which means... Britain's number one. This week's highest new entry and the brand new chart music number one, the Cupertino Kid. Fucking hell. Oh, what a chart. The thing with Jesus Christ is, he will rise again. It is foretold. It is foretold in the scripture. Yeah, around about March, April time, yeah? So this week's new entries, well, the the pig people of Charlesmore, but new metal, I think. You reckon? I thought they might be one of those sort of um, self-consciously quirky indie bands like Bombay Bicycle Club or Mystery Jets or something like that. Could be. Yeah, they sound quite winsome. Yeah. Because I got it into my head that they're like Slipknot, (laughs) but they've got on masks that look like the corpse faces of people like Larry Grayson, Hyacinth Bouquet, Pete Waterman, and other famous people from Coventry and surrounding area. I do like that, yeah. Oh, that's it then. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, Friar David, well, goes without saying. Yeah, French monk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, proving that the Catholic Church can move with the times. Yeah. I think there's a bit of Judy Zook satin tour jackets going on with uh, rock expert David Stubbs being in there. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because I think he's, I think he's getting unfairly hyped into the charts, given that he, <laughs> you know, this kind of this cross-platform promotion of him having his own YouTube show. Which I'm sure all the uh, PCYs are watching avidly. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's it's like you know the kids from Fame uh, bumping up Irene Cara's record sales. It's yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's fix. Shocks piss fire. What what are they all about? What's their stitch? Ooh, what do you think, Sarah? Three piece garage. Yeah, yeah. Not bad. Forgettable, but you know, bit of lead in the pencil. <laughs> <laughs> and the Cupertino kid, well, that's obviously shaking Weller. Yeah. Like Nicholas Lindhurst when he sang My Generation with Michael Barrymore in some jam shoes and a parka. Or, or me in 1983 failing week after week to be Paul Weller. One day we'll have to share um, the mock-up poster I made of The Jam, yes. the movie, which actually has Nicholas Lindhurst in the yes. role as Weller. <laughs> yes. Who, who else was in it? Uh, Martin Shaw, yeah, and uh, Dennis Waterman. Of course, Dennis Waterman. <laughs> so if you want to join those lovely people, get yourself on that there info net. Slap them fingers on your keyboard. Hammer out patreon.com slash music. Step up to the pay window and slip some coin next to this here groin. <laughs> Oh, and if you have subscribed and I've still not read your name out, that's because I'm a disorganised bellend and I need to be told about it. So don't be shy. Come and shout at me. Call me a knobend or whatever. He loves it, really. I just want to do right by the pop-crazed youngsters. Yeah. 
They deserve it. It's all I live for nowadays. <laughs> so this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to July the 25th. 2003 i nearly said 19 there just stopped myself in time because yes this is another excursion to this unwiped arse of a century um i can't lie to you pop crazy youngsters uh, looking at episodes from the arse at the top of the pops just fills me with dread <laughs> can you hear this listen to this what that was my arm after it's been twisted by these two here <laughs> to do an episode from 2003. I didn't want to do it. They forced me to. It was the big boys and girls that egged me on, sir. It's for your own good, Al. And you know what, Pop Craze Youngsters? They were right to twist my arm so hard because if you are setting yourself up as an authority on top of the pops, it can't all be billowy Saxons and flags and balloons and all that good stuff. To ignore Top of the Pops' declining years is like an episode of The World at War where Lawrence and Olivier says, well, D-Day happened and that was the Nazis pretty much fucked. The end. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. We've got to cover the grim death march of Top of the Pops in the early part of the noughties. And I think this is a distinct era that we've not looked at, isn't it? The particular regime. The nearest we've come is 2000, me, Sarah and Neil. It is a period we have to talk about because this episode we're going to cover comes from a time when it seems like the music business is in decline, traditional media appears to be in decline, and Top of the Pops is a show in terminal decline. I mean, nobody knows it yet, but after the episode we're going to cover is in the books, there are only exactly 100 episodes left before Sir Jingle Nonso BE turns out the lights. Fucking hell, yeah. So where to start with this, chaps? If I were to say to you, the music of 2003, what's springing to mind? Well, I honestly believe that the noughties were the last great golden age of pop. Mm. And a lot of it, I would say, was driven by the creative rivalry between producers at that time on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, So in the US, it was Timberland versus the Neptunes, Pharrell, you know. And um, in the UK, it was Richard X versus Xenomania. And these producers all had various kind of puppet acts that they were working with. So Mm. Britney and Justin, you know, Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud and so on. Um, Often these producers working on, on the same act at the same time, but just different songs. So, for example, Justin Timberlake's album Justified, which was huge around this time, mm. had some tracks by Timberland and some by the Neptunes. And Sugar Babes had hits with songs produced by Xenomania and others produced by Richard X, notably right. Freak Like Me, which was you know essentially a re-recording of a mashup he'd made under the alias Girls on Top. So he had all these elements of kind of the avant-garde leaning end of R&B Mm. and mashup culture and electro clash as well all feeding into mainstream pop and for my money making it amazing mm. electro clash was very much my thing at the time I, I was into you know peaches and fisher spooner and lady tron and gold frap and all that um so yeah. and let's not fuck around here it was basically romo under a different name right? <laughs> uh, like when enemy finally deemed it okay to you know uh, embrace synthesizers and posing about you're saying it's robo romo yeah exactly turbo yeah. romo yes <laughs> You were just too ahead of your time. I mean, you knew that. Yeah. yeah. You could have reinvented yourself, Simon, at this time as Romocop. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have 20 seconds to like Orlando. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. 
but also i mean there's so much else around this time i, I was hugely into the white stripes yeah. and yeah. um and and the hives and the rapture and harmar superstar and british sea power and the dresden mm. dolls and lcd sound system lcd sound system right were both a product of and a satire of the hipster movement which was emerging it, so this was the time mm. of the hoxton finn you know that hairstyle yes. where you sweep all your hair into a ridge in the middle like you know like new parents do when they're bathing their babies <laughs> and they think it's hilarious to yeah, that, soak that kind their of hair up to... in 2002 didn't it with beckham yeah yeah exactly yeah. and you know what i i was in the orbit of that hipster scene i mean i was way too old at 35 to be one right but i was going to the club trash or anywhere else errol alcan was djing and also nag 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 mm. but in hindsight now that hipsters have all grown beards and opened cereal cafes instead, <laughs> I do think that loads of amazing music came out of that slightly wanky scene. Yeah. I, I even tried launching a Naughty's Nostalgia Night a couple of years ago called yeah. Destroy Rock and Roll. I don't think people were ready for it yet because it was only the decade after the decade that you're nostalging about. And I think people need sort of two decades sort of gap um but so i might try again soon in that case mm. yeah i i do think that and other people who know more about these things than me have said that electro clash is overdue a revival now by about two years you know like how there are people who like trend forecasts and everything and then there are people who predict when you know society is going to collapse and whatnot and it's like <laughs> before the collapse of society which apparently we are on schedule for according to the um they they've, they've dredged up a, a report from the 70s about uh like what's you know how how things are going to crumble and it's like we're right we're right on track for that so yeah. if we can have an electroclash revival before that then i'll be quite happy because <laughs> it was yeah it was great i went to trash a few times i was not i wasn't cool enough basically i went anyway it was slightly snooty and slightly you know but i knew that there was there was something in it and i yeah and i really loved the music and it's absolutely it was a great time for for pop mm. just so much inventiveness coming into like what you would have thought would be quite standard safe fare before like ex-boy bands or new girl bands or whatever and it's like no the they're coming out like justified what an album i just oh, rinsed yes. that this entire year and you know revisited it since and it, it still it sounds of its time but it still holds up it's it, it, it's incredible absolutely amazing what a joy and you know yeah. christina had her fourth album loads of people have their fourth album out this year weirdly so christina was doing strip to this point so christina had thrown off all her clothes and embraced <laughs> sex oh, i love her it's always fun when somebody does that and i love that i know people really laid into her at the time but i thought it's fucking great um kylie had her ninth album out which was Jesus, this was kylie's yeah. e album body language mm. which the main single of which was um slow which is one of her bestie bests britney had her fourth album out as well britney was doing really well missy had her fifth album out uh, i think every member of the woo put out an album this year yeah probably. each one yeah <laughs> And, and a few of their mates. Dizzy Rascal's first album as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, you know, 18-year-old Dizzy Rascal um, just blasting onto the scene. And Outcast as well, Speaker Box and The Love Below. Oh, oh yes. yes. Yes, please. All these good things. And they were starting to be that sort of healthy cross-pollination and kind of mingling and, you know, of... of uh, a lot of different things that was starting to break down genre, really, which is what you have now where the genre has, has never been less of a thing. Um, and mm. yeah, the, and then like the whole bunch of like cool American garagey art rocky stuff that you were saying, the kills yeah. and the yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the White Stripes were just great, weren't they? It was so, it was such mm. a huge thing. They were quite a, a music journal thing, 
but it was also you know people loved them and they were they were amazing yeah i think they were kind of quite avant-garde in their way even though they're very retro as well drawing upon sort of classic blues and stuff just the fact they were so minimal mm. and the fact they had this very clear aesthetic they had this you know that, that whole sort of red white and black um, design scheme and everything and mm. everything yeah, was three I, I thought, the, the whole kind of jack white's thing of yeah. like threes yeah yeah i think that people have got them wrong a little bit when they think it's just sort of throwback band i, I think no, there's something weirdly modern about them but they were just really fun as well they were just really fun and they made a big racket and it was incredible how much sound they produced oh god seeing them at dingwalls when they were just sort of breaking through over here was just phenomenal wow. just you know two people making that kind of physically exciting music mm. oh yeah, yeah. yeah and they had this yeah. and it was great the sort of energy of the two of them because uh, jack white was this slightly kind of there's a slight mania and this kind of wild wildness about him and then meg who was so serene yeah and just had this little kind of mona lisa smile on was just there crashing away in the background it was you know yeah and there was that whole conceit of them pretending to be brother and sister when they were actually ex-husbands and ex-wives. That's so funny that. how people couldn't figure that yeah. out for ages. It's like, that's a blues <laughs> thing. They're doing the blues thing. Going, oh, my brother, oh, my sister. And it's like, that's just kind of, you know. But it was great because it added this kind of subtext to it, to the sort of sexual chemistry on stage. And it, yeah, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was all part of it, definitely. Yeah. You all two have just demonstrated that there's a fuck ton going on on the music scene of 2003. But round about this time, everyone's talking about pop being in decline when what they actually meant was the music business was in decline. I mean, as far yeah. as the charts went, it had got to the point where if you sold 20,000 copies of your new single, you could get to number one. Yeah, well, I think what happened was that around the turn of the millennium, um, the music industry tried to squash the internet, tried to stamp on it, things like Napster mm. and all of that. Yes. Um, and by this point, sort of three years into the century, they start to realise they've got it horribly wrong. Yes, and that really they should have fucking embraced it from the beginning yes and that they're sort of playing catch up really trying to figure out how they could do that everybody points the finger at the internet for all of this you know mm. by 2003 the internet stopped being cb radio for spods mm. but it's still not that all conquering yet is it no you know that this is pre-social media pre-youtube pre pretty much anything bar file sharing and forums yeah and sharing a file downloading a song might take all night i can remember setting yes. set my my old steam powered fucking first generation imac those fruit colored ones to download oh. um, a michael jackson track um at the start of a night out and when i came home that like pretty much the next morning it would just about <laughs> finish downloading killing music slowly i Simon. was it was the first little cut <laughs> little, first little jab there yeah um i just couldn't find that track anywhere else like i couldn't not, literally could not pay for yes. it. Yeah, you'd go to nightclubs and people would not have phones, they might have their phone in their pocket to fucking call a taxi to get them home, but they weren't staring yeah. at the screen all night. What would happen was you'd go out to a club, you'd live, you'd have the night out, you'd do stuff. Then maybe at 3am you'd come home and very drunk sort of fire up MSN Messenger or MySpace or something <laughs> and talk to people on there about what had happened. But it wouldn't be the focus of your whole fucking night. And, I, you know, you sound like no. a right old cunt saying that. But I think there was this kind of sweet spot where technology um, enabled people to sort of reach out and uh, make contact with each other and, 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 and befriend each other. But it wasn't everything. Yeah, it wasn't everything. Mm. Let's get stuck in. Hi. I'm Scott Hancock and I host From Queer to Eternity, a new podcast exploring what it means to be queer, where we have conversations like this. I look at younger generations and go, you can just Google this stuff. The fact that the only mention of queerness was don't get AIDS. <laughs> if I'd been marrying a girl, that would not have happened. 
maybe we can find a, a universality that, that we weren't aware of before. That's why this podcast is so great, because actually, well, I guess we just don't think to speak of this stuff, and yet it's part of our fabric. From Queer to Eternity, available to listen to now from the Great Big Owl Company. In the news, the body of the scientist and biological weapons expert David Kelly has been found at Harrow Downhill in Oxfordshire. Saddam Hussein's sons have been killed by coalition forces in Mosul. Jeffrey Archer has been released from prison after serving two years of a four-year sentence for being a lying bastard. <laughs> Idi Amin has fallen into a coma in a Saudi hospital where he's been in exile since 1980 and will die in a fortnight. The British Grand Prix at Silverstone is interrupted when Neil Horan, a defrocked Catholic priest, runs onto the track in a kilt, brandishing a placard which reads, Read the Bible, the Bible is always right. He would go on to attempt to run onto the track at the 2004 Epsom Derby before being restrained by police, push over the Brazilian marathon runner Vandalay de Lima while he was leading in the marathon at that Summer Olympics, found not guilty of indecent assault while claiming he only ever wore one pair of green satin pants, which he never washed because he, quote, needed them at all times, and then pulled them out of his pockets and waved them at the jury. Got arrested in Berlin after planning to do a piece jig outside the stadium before the World Cup final while holding a banner which read Adolf Hitler was a good leader who was following the word of Christ and get through to the first round of Britain's Got Talent in 2009. He was later imprisoned for 12 counts of indecent assault and was last seen dancing outside Southwark Crown Court in support of Rolf Harris. The last British living participant in World War One has died at the age of 108. Bob Hope has died. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
arrived at the age of 100 in California of pneumonia. But the big news this week is that Mobert has announced on his website that he's honoured to learn that his name is being used in salons as a description of a tuppenny all-off round the fanny. <laughs> on the cover of Melody Maker this week, nothing because it shut down three years ago. On the cover of Smash Hits, D-Side. The number one LP in the UK is Dangerously in Love by Beyonce. Over in America, the number one single is Crazy in Love by Beyonce. And the number one LP is Chapter 2 by Ashante. So, me dears, what were we doing in July of 2003? Well, uh, I had... Uh, already burned out and uh, fucked off out of London by this point. Uh, Probably this month, actually. I went to live in Lancaster and tried to live a normal life because I was so fucking tired. Yeah, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, and just kind of really disillusioned with things and and my uncle was renting out his old house, which I knew from when I was a kid, and uh, he agreed to rent it to me. Um, Not for... Like, you know, because people are like, oh, you get a peppercorn rent? Nah. (laughs) So I had to pay proper money, but, you know, it still wasn't very much. It was a little teeny tiny terrace house in Lancaster. And I I just tried to have normal jobs with um, varying degrees of success. (laughs) And uh, got a dog because I volunteered at a shelter and then inevitably ended up just falling in love with one of the dogs and bringing Mm. him home, even though he was huge and impossible and impractical and hated all other dogs with a searing passion. But other than that, he was the best. I was uh, just attempting to do something different because I had been in London since '99, uh, and I felt like I was done with it and it was done with me. And of course, I would move back again within uh, a couple of years, but um, I really, really needed the time off. Mm. But uh, one of the last things I did, along with uh, Bang Magazine, was <laughs> I was an extra in Shaun of the Dead. Oh, my no. God. Oh, yes. I was, uh, yeah, we did, I, I had filmed um, several bits in early summer 2003. Right. I wasn't like a massive Spaced fan, but I did actually know Edgar a bit. Yeah. He had made a pop video and I had to go and cover it. And so we became friendly. Which video? Um, uh, it was a Blue Tones video. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it was in like Hackney Empire. Yeah. So I, I sort of got to know him through that. So he told me that this was happening and I kind of hopped onto the list of, you know, because most of the extras were spaced fans and it was uh, sort of, mm. there was a shout out on a forum. And um, so I had to, you know, I went and auditioned and um, there was a girl who could put her leg all the way like backwards, which was great. And I've realised since that, because I was so impressed with her doing it, I didn't realise that my kind of collagen is so shot that I can do that as well. Oh my God. (laughs) So I should have, you know, but I, at the time, this was a talent that had gone unrealised. So yeah, um, I did like four or five bits, I think. Wow. I was very, very sort of deep background, so it's hard to spot me in the thing, but there's a blob that is me. The bit where um, they finally realise that the zombie apocalypse is happening and they're in the car... And they're driving through London. They look left and right and they see yeah. the body bags spilling out of the back of an ambulance with a body writhing around in it. No. And they look to the right and there's a kind of, uh, there's a park, there's a bit of uh, kind of covered reservoir. Yeah. And I'm one of them in the way, uh. way in the distance, coming ominously towards the camera. Oh. Is this so when um, Mr. Mental by 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster is playing? I seem um, to remember it was when they were in that car drive. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit... Oh, yeah. All the, all the, uh, the, the 80s Matchbox bits are so brilliant. They were extras in it as well. Mm. There's a bit 
towards the like right at the end where there's a little compilation of what happened next yeah. and it's like there's like zombie game shows and stuff i was in the audience for oh. the kind of zombie opportunity knocks bit <laughs> so i wasn't actually a zombie in that bit uh, there's a bit i can't even remember what the context is for this but there's a bit where there's some zombies chained up in the back of a truck and it's the 80s matchbox disaster and me and a couple of other people. Fucking hell. Brilliant fun. I remember seeing a picture of you on the internet all zombied up. Yeah, so yeah that, that that's be- from that day where yeah. I had a bit of zombie makeup on because it was it was so far in the distance that, you yeah. know, I didn't need a whole lot. But yeah, that was my profile picture on Friendster. <laughs> Friendster. Yeah. I loved Friendster. I miss that. That's a very early noughties thing. It really is, yeah. It was great. And the nice thing about that was is you, you it was like there was a section for you to say nice things about your friends, wasn't there? Yeah. It was like you could review your mates and go, they're really great. They're my mates. And mate. you sort of introduce people to other people and it just all seemed like a nice little club rather than what social yeah. media became. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, oh. there's a whole long read about why friends to failed, yeah. which uh, which is out there somewhere. Um, and it is, it's quite sad. But um, yeah, I, there was, sadly, I don't have a picture of the day when I did the pub scene. Um, or the Winchester. I was at the Winchester, yeah. yeah. So there are some hands, when, when there's kind of the hands banging on the window, some yeah. of those hands oh, are mine. Yes. And then I also uh, got to go in the pub and, and watch the uh, the kind of the pool cue fight. Yeah, and oh my God. The, Don't yeah, stop me now. Witness to history. Yeah, really. Because oh, we were in, we were sort of crammed in the, uh, the little um, hallway as well. And uh, uh, what's his name? Peter Serafinovitz, who is who's there just wearing yeah. a small pair of pants and body <laughs> makeup and looking very tall and sinister. <laughs> he was lovely. He was really great. Um, and yeah, the Zombage, as we were called by the uh, by the assistant director, um, where, like you knew when you were being t- spoken to, would say Zombage <laughs> over here, please. And so we had to stand in the in the hallway of the pub set and with the pork scratchings and everything. There turned out to be loads of people that I know um, in that film in the in the Zombage. So. Um, <laughs> Tim Chipping, the singer from the band Orlando, is a mate of mine, yes. um, is, was one of them because he was mates with Edgar. And Lauren Laverne is in there, isn't she? Really? Is La- she? Yeah, she's, uh, there's, there's a scene in somebody's back garden where I, th- I think it's when they realise that the zombie apocalypse isn't just localised, it's really spread. And yeah, just Lauren right there. And she was obviously oh. already quite famous at this point. <laughs> Oh, I yeah, don't can't. Yeah, um, but yeah, Tim is actually on the Tim, who's a mate of mine also, and who wrote for Bang. Yeah, wait until the bitter end. He's on the poster as well. Yeah. So he's properly immortalised, and it was very funny. It was quite an insight into because uh, there were a lot of kind of um, you know very far background extras who were just there for a laugh and everything. And it is it's kind mm. of hard work. It's very yeah. repetitive, and you have to do the same thing over and over. And it was, you know, obviously it's British weather and you're standing outside in the freezing cold, even though it's supposed to be summer. And your flesh is dropping off your bones as well. That's yeah. Exactly. Like. It's like, you know. And you, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I, you know, I made new friends and had a, a lovely time. And, yeah, that was when we were in the pub and they, uh, they you know, they set the bar on fire at one point. So that happened over and over again. And every single time they, they had the fire department on hand to put it out. Hmm. Every single time we all cheered. Yeah, <laughs> it never got old. It was just hey, firemen, proud to have been a part of it. Yeah. Very, very, very small part. God, it's funny hearing you read through the news stories there, and uh, yeah. the story about Doctor David Kelly just sort of reminds you with a, a shiver of the kind of dark shadows behind the 
gleaming, beaming smiles of Tony Blair and New Labour. Yeah. One thing I, I do remember is that I was quite blissfully apolitical at this time, by, by my usual standards, let's say. And yeah. I think a lot of people were, you know, because the Tories had gone and didn't look yeah. like they'd ever be coming back, ever, you know. <laughs> and as long as you didn't have the misfortune to live in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else that George W. Bush was using for bombing practice to help prop up America's erectile dysfunctional sense of imperial dominance, you could afford to drift away from yeah. worrying about politics too much. Um, Blair was two years into his second term. Britain had just joined the US-led coalition invading Iraq, using fake dossiers about weapons of mass destruction, of course, as the no. pretext. Um, I was part of that largest march in history in London that February, trying to prevent that happening to oh, yeah, no yeah, avail. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone we knew. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah. It'd be easier to list people who weren't, yeah. Um, but, you know, thanks to Blair's starry-eyed Atlanticism and his eagerness to be George W. Bush's pet poodle, you know, yo, Blair, and all that. Yeah. But, you know, nevertheless, I was, I was still able to call myself a Labour person by default, not least because my local MP was so anti-war, um, an obscure backbencher called Jeremy Corbyn, um, <laughs> who lived a few doors down from me on the same street, it turns out. Oh. I was living um, in the same basement flat, off Holloway Road in North London that I was living in during the Britpop years that we talked about uh, with Neil that time, Shed yeah. 7 and all that. And I was doing three jobs at once. This this was insane this year. It was just so fucking intense and overloaded and, and really vivid as well. I think um, I earned the most money I to date that I've ever earned in one calendar year, but also fucked myself up so much that the sensible thing would probably to do what Sarah did and go and live somewhere hundreds of miles away. <laughs> I was doing one newspaper column, one editorial job on a magazine, and running a club night. So I, I wasn't just burning the candle at both ends. I was holding a cigarette lighter under the middle of the candle as well and <laughs> me melting the wax off it, leaving it looking like a waxy nunchuck, you know. Which you then threw into a fire. Yes, exactly. I know we always end up talking about clothes and hair, so I should mention my look at this time, <laughs> right? I wasn't a goth as such by this point. I'd had a couple of circuit breakers from that, um, identity-wise. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, since being a proper goth, I'd had not one but two hip-hop phases and the Romo thing in between. And, um, and by now, I created this kind of hybrid non-tribal image for myself which was crowned by a twin set of elaborate plastic antlers uh, which you may remember oh, yes. woven into my real hair courtesy of peppies who were this um, really amazing cyberpunk hairdressers at camden lock um it was a, a high maintenance look uh, but i liked it and um oh it used to really piss me off by the way right um uh, I'm going to vent now. When people <laughs> shouted, and to this day do shout, "Twisted Firestarter" at me in the street, right? Oh. Because I wasn't copying Keith. Um, if anything, I was copying Sue Catwoman from the seventies. Yes, um, I, I met her once, and she was really nice. And I, I apologised to her for nicking her hairstyle, but she said, "At least you're doing it well," which was really sweet of her. <laughs> um, so yeah, work-wise, after leaving Melody Maker, I'd taken a couple of years off from the front line of music journalism, if you like, to write my Manix book and, and the book was very successful uh, yeah. I'm going to blow my own trumpet here it was the fastest selling rock biography of all time in the UK um, 
Book of the Year in NME and Rock Book of the Decade in The Guardian. So it was a useful calling card career-wise. And um, mm. it was off the back of that that I got a job with The Independent on Sunday um, right. as their chief rock and pop critic, um, which is a high-profile job. You know, there's only yeah. so many of those jobs going around, you know, only so many national newspapers. And it's a bit like sort of the managerial merry-go-round of Premier League managers or something like that, that, that when, when you're in situ, when you've got one of these jobs, you sort of cling on to it. So, yeah, I had my own column every Sunday with a little photo of my face at the top, you know, sort of thing little like like a cameo brooch um and uh one version of that photo cropped my horns out i was so pissed off i, I complained I, I complained and they re- reinstated them um but one of the good things about working for the independent at that time was that they refused to allow record companies or, or pr companies to pay for anything yeah. so the paper would cover all my travel costs and hotels and all that oh. so it was a matter of principle that the paper shouldn't feel indebted to or influenced by anyone, you know, literally independent. Mm. And there was also the fact that the paper as a whole didn't stand or fall on music advertising coming into my section, unlike, you know, Q or NME, who completely relied on that. So I had a real kind of carte blanche to say whatever I wanted. And um, this was at the exact time that music journalism as a whole was becoming very timid and diplomatic uh, due to a number mm. of factors, and and which we talked about in previous episodes, and and the role of the critic was turning into that of a cheerleader. And you know, meanwhile, I've got this job where I was able to keep it old school, and I was writing pretty vicious takedowns of major stars, um, yeah, including Elton John, of course, which came back to bite me on the ass, as I mentioned in a previous episode, because <laughs> he's got some influential friends. Um, so as well as bigging up the things I believed in, of course, because it wasn't just entirely negative, you know. I'm not that guy. Even people think I was. And this freedom that I had there, it worked out really well for me. I ended up winning awards for it. Um, Live Reviews Writer of the Year three times in a row. And I really must put my trumpet down now. Um, (laughs) But, you know, uh, you you often say, so what were you doing at this time? I can say exactly what I was doing because I've found my Independent on Sunday column nearest to this date. Um, So I had been to see the world's greatest entertainer, the hardest working man in show business, soul brother number one, the amazing Mr. Please, 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 the godfather of soul, James oh, Brown at the Royal Lord. Albert Hall. Yes. With his magician. <laughs> it was amazing. It was it was a memorable and eventful show in a lot of ways. I remember his band wore these white naval suits with gold brocade, a bit like in the Navy. Um, right. I, I compared them to the crew of the Love Boat and also to Glenn Ponder and Lazarus. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he did his famous knee-trembling dance, you know, and um, mm. he did that thing where he pretends to collapse and his minions rush over and bring him his cape and all that. And uh, he randomly brought a Janis Joplin impersonation on stage I can never figure out what that was for what he bottled out of you know in I Got You I Feel Good there's the big I feel yeah. he bottled out of that which um, you know I guess he's getting on a bit but saying that he made the bizarre claim on the mic that he was 59 years old now all <laughs> biographical material available had him down as at least 10 years older than that at the time yeah and the other thing, he told us, you all need to eat more fish and chips. I've had mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, some of it was fucking amazing. Obviously, it's James Brown, you know, and he had a well-drilled band, famously. It's a man's, man's, man's world, like, utterly slayed the place, right? Papa's yeah. got a brand new bag. Fucking amazing. Here's what, right, I've got a bit. Here's what I wrote about Papa's got a brand new bag at the time. James Brown has, as he reminds us several times been coming to the Royal Albert Hall for 30 years since Papa's bag really was brand new. It's not often in pop history that you can pinpoint exactly one artist and even one song 
which changed everything. If you're looking for the moment where the various strands of black music, blues, jazz, gospel, soul, suddenly ignited into funk, you can't go far wrong if you pick James Brown. And specifically, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Lean, Mm. stripped down, brutally propulsive. It was aimed at nothing other than the hips and the feet. Truly a revolutionary record. And I do believe that. And here's how I ended the review. For a person so famed for laying down the law, James Brown sure spends a lot of time asking for the green light. Permission to take to the bridge is requested and unanimously granted. (laughs) That's it. Did he say anything about mushy peas? (laughs) You need to know, yeah. Like, uh, Mm. where does he stand on the sort of north-south divide uh, in in ship accompaniments? Yeah. Yeah, what about the bits? Yeah, we'll never know now. (laughs) What a shame. Well... I'd also left London this year. I moved back to Nottingham in March and I'm fucking loving it here. I think the last thing I did in London was go on that march. Yeah. And I just had enough of London. I honestly believe that everyone should spend time in their own capital city. But as soon as you hit your 30s, you just start to think, well, what what the fuck am I doing? I'm spending three hours commuting every day. You know, my mates had all got to that point where they were all settling down. And as soon as they wanted to move on with their life, either, you know, buy a house or get married or have kids, the first thing they'd do is get the fuck out of London because they couldn't afford to do it there. Yeah. And so I was pretty much the last man standing and just not up for, for trying to find a new circle of friends there because it, it was just costing me too much. And, you know, I just came to the realisation that I'm not going to create a new family here, so I might as well go back to Nottingham and, and link up with my old one. My sister had just had a kid, and I really wanted to be part of his life. Yeah. And within months of me moving back and getting to know him, my sister fucks off to Shropshire. So, yeah, thanks, Trey. <laughs> by this time, I was a freelance magazine writer and was assured by the people I was working for at the time, oh, you're moving out of London? Great, we need more provincial writers. So there was a lot of work being dangled Mm. in front of me, which mysteriously evaporated as soon as I wasn't in London anymore. You know, commissioning editors, they want good writers, but they also want good writers they can go out and have a drink with. Yes. By this time, I'm pretty much a sexpert, which (laughs) I'd been for quite a few years. People always used to ask me what that meant, and I just said, well, I have sex... Then I spurt. Fuck's sake. But I was writing for Cosmo. I was writing for Scarlet. I was writing for Marie Claire. Yeah. I got a sex column in the Daily Mirror. Oh, fucking hell. I used to write a lot for M, the, the, the women's magazine, which was fucking brilliant. They'd, yeah. they'd send me out doing all manner of shit. And like you, Simon, I got a photo at the top of my column. Uh, it was a, a sort of a sideways shot with my oh, mouth yeah. open and all smiley. And, and for some reason, they'd done it in a demi silhouette. And it made me look like the fucking happy man's perverted uncle who just spotted some pants in a bush. I look fucking awful. They should have put fucking horns on me. I would have looked better. I should have asked. So I demanded that they bring me down to London for another photo shoot to get something remotely decent. And, you know, fair play to them, they did. Well, I guess you had to be semi-anonymous so you don't get recognised um, among your um, sexploits. Well, not only that, but, you know, it would have been nice for them to have had a male sex columnist who actually looked like someone that at least some of the audience would have wanted <laughs> sex with, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, as they say, when one's tired of London, one's tired of being shit on, so I fucked off out of it. And it's always weird when you decide to leave London, isn't it? Because you you do feel like you're crossing a line, or at least drawing a line in the sand of your life. It feels like an admission of defeat sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. 
Because most of the time I was there, I felt like I was just clinging on to London like my fucking fingernails. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there was this sort of vacuum sucking me back towards Wales, and yeah. like the undertow in the sea, you know. And yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and just just clinging on to London was the thing. I didn't have any life plan. I didn't know what I was going to be doing when I was yeah. thirty seven, thirty eight. It was just like fucking getting through the next few months is as far yeah. as you ever look, really. Yeah. Yeah. Within four years, I was out of there as well. Um, not back home to Wales, but down to Brighton. But yeah, I just felt a similar thing to you, Al. That the city just felt more and more brutal and hostile and callous and like it was just fucking rinsing me dry just sucking every last penny out of me and yeah. i couldn't even enjoy the stuff that you're meant to enjoy about london exactly because i was paying too much just to fucking exist in london yeah so yeah you come to realization at some point and um yeah for me it was getting down to brighton but yeah i, I completely understand why why you went back mm, which is really funny Simon, because right about this time me and you got to know each other on the when saturday comes forum yeah by having severe goes at each other for me disliking <laughs> london and you accusing me of being alan partridge <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it now yes <laughs> london is you know it's kind of a cliche really but it's tough it's a tough place because mm. you think that your whole identity is 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 really sort of predicated yeah. on it, you know and it's like what it is like failure to leave mm. but then it's like oh okay i won't actually crumble to dust if i cross the north circular you know yeah. and i'm kind of going through that again now because what's been happening over the the last 18 months and i have felt like my flat which i love very much has just turned into a little sort of space pod mm. i just want to uproot my flat and take it somewhere else yeah. but also like because technology now just about allows you to work from anywhere and i think people have finally finally belatedly got their heads yeah. around the idea yeah. that that's doable and i think in a way that people didn't in 2003 because it was like out of sight, out of mind, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, And so I didn't expect at all to get any work in music journalism or whatever if I moved out of London because, you know, I just didn't. Mm. But I, I went back two and a half years later because I had some work for the satirical newsletter, The Friday Thing, right. which was a paid-for email newsletter, I've probably mentioned this before, that actually, like, made money and stuff. Fuck. Yeah, that was a cool wow. thing, which inevitably died on its ass. Yeah. Music-wise, for me, I'm pretty much in the same position I was in the mid-80s, where I'm turning my back on the modern stuff and, and burrowing into the old stuff. I'm hoovering up all the tunes I've been looking for for ages on Napster. Yeah. I just stopped being 50 pound man. Right. I just got sick to death of wanting one track and having to spend 17 pound at Tower Records for a CD compilation from America and uh, it it being the wrong version of it. So I just thought, fuck this. You're not giving me what I want. I'm going to have to get it for myself. Yeah. I am spree killing music at the moment. You're a 50 megabyte man. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as far as Top of the Pops goes fuck it it's on friday night friday night is either getting ready to go out or being in the pub straight from work top of the pops is dead to me yeah i wasn't watching it either probably four or five nights a week i was out seeing gigs either to review them or just for pleasure and then there's a good chance that the other two nights i was doing club stuff so you know no no fucking way on a friday evening am i sitting watching that even if my favorite bands are on it no obviously it never recovered from the move to friday nights and and it was up against cory and all that but that's there's lots of like logical reasons for why that was a, a bad idea but less logically i think it's that it belonged on Thursday. Yeah. That was just Top of the Pops night. 
like you can't it's all perhaps with christmas it wasn't easter you can't just move it the other thing i was doing that was keeping me in london was um working full-time for a magazine and uh, both of you were involved in this whole thing mm. to varying degrees so you know what i'm talking about but um i'd, I'd been approached the previous year by these two drongos who called themselves the gloom <laughs> brothers right right they were these two posh blokes one big one small like batman and robin they previously held some sort of non-specified role in the music business, but they had a sideline in very high-concept graphics-led DIY zines, very big on poster art and stuff like that. Mm. And um, these two, absolute chances and charlatans, they'd somehow managed to persuade a major publisher, Future Publishing, which was the home of Metal Hammer, among other things, yeah. to give just give them a magazine, a new magazine called Bang! Exclamation mark. It was bang all caps. Yeah, well, all of it was caps. Yeah, yeah. Got into trouble yeah. if you uh, yeah, didn't cap it all. Um, it was meant to cash in on, on the noughties wave, uh, and we talked about this a little bit already, of, of guitar music, which came along in the wake of the strokes. And, yeah. and, and the idea was, I guess, from a market strategy point of view, to attack the existing glossy monthlies like Q and Mojo mm. from a more left field, kind of young inverted commas edgy position if you know what i mean i you talk about bands that are actually still going yeah yeah right exactly and they brought me in um as features editor now obviously brand new mag we needed writers and my most recent experience of working among other really good writers was at melody maker mm. so i decided to get the old gang back together for one last heist you know <laughs> um so the idea being that we'd um have that kind of um, uh, freedom of writing things absolutely say what you want and express yourself in the pages that we used to have at Melody Maker yeah um, in 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 my time Melody Maker let's say at least and um, so that you know the people I I tried to bring in to create this team uh, included Neil Kukani and Taylor Parks of Mm. course and also Sarah even though our times at uh, Melody Maker did not overlap we knew each other and I I knew you were a good writer and um and and when I finish my rant now, I'd, I'd love to hear Sarah's memories of all this. But um, also, <laughs> yeah, don't worry. <laughs> uh, um, Maria Jeffries, who um, I knew from Melody Maker, was already on board as the picture editor. So you know, and um, I even got you to do something, didn't I, Al? I yes. Think, I remember there's a thing about Suicide Girls. Yeah, the, yeah I did uh, the thing about Suicide Girls. The alternative porn website, because as you as you say, you were Mister Sex. You know, you were exactly porn not. expert. Yes, exactly. I'll need him. You yes, know, I, I was. Uh, yes, I was. I was starting to call myself Nottingham's Mister Sex. Yeah, exactly. And people used to ask me why, and I'd say, "Oh, but, well, because I come from Nottingham." You know, if I call myself Darby's <laughs> Mister Sex, I'd be lying to folk. Oh, I like uh, it. Yeah, I'm yeah. all about the honesty. <laughs> So um, you know, uh, I, I was I was trying to build a strong team there, and um, but from the very start, there was a friction between the people I wanted to bring in and the Gloom Brothers. So, mm. for example, I tried to get Stephen Wells, R.I.P., uh, involved, yes. but uh, when he came to the pub, and and Sarah knew Swells really well, and she'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Swells was so abrasive in his usual kind <laughs> of take no prisoners motor mouth style that the gloom brothers just didn't want to work with him um <laughs> and uh, and it didn't help when taylor parks came to the pub and said that the trouble with music magazines these days is that they're always run by someone called crispin right? <laughs> and one of one of the gloom brothers was literally called crispin oh. <laughs> for fuck's sake uh, anyway anyway oh. we we got the first issue out with the flaming lips on the cover and the piece was written by me i, I was interviewing wayne coin in vienna and uh, we held a swanky launch party with the darkness playing live um, ah. i'm going to talk about the darkness in a bit um Issue 
2 was a misfire. We put a band called Hot Hot Heat on the front in the belief they were going to be the next Strokes, and clue, they weren't. Um, Issue 3 was a complete self-indulgence from the Gloom Brothers. We had the polyphonic spree on the front, right? That utopian cult-like choir Mm. uh, in a special elongated cover that folded out because the band had so many members, including (laughs) including the Gloom Brothers themselves as temporary honorary members in red cassocks, which was never going to shift copies right <laughs> they had terrible instincts um that the cover i wanted to do was vetoed and this was um peaches and iggy pop together they made a single together oh, i thought hell. peaches and iggy pop would have been an amazing front cover mm. and would totally have embodied the ethos that the magazine purported to hold and it's something that um q would never have done mojo would never have done it's like you know it would be really sort of staking our claim for our territory yeah. and they you know nah they weren't having it and they literally laughed at franz ferdinand when the first record came in right this is a band who we should have been all over and the the rest of us were like what are you fucking talking about this is brilliant mm. um by issue four, any pretense of being edgy had gone out of the window. They stuck Radiohead on the front in desperation, and it wasn't long before Coldplay and Blur were on the front. So it might as well, yeah. at that point, it might as well have been Q Magazine. In fact... Um, Melody Maker. Oh, fuck me, yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact, the, the Gloom Brothers, right, they used to troll us in the office by playing Coldplay really loud. Oh. While we, we had to sit there silently resenting them. It was a total power play, because, you know, they were in charge. We had to sit there while they're, they're playing the fucking Scientist by Coldplay, full volume on CD player. Um, some of the things I was obliged to do were fucking humiliating. They'd come up with this really gross, insensitive item called Dead Fashion, Right? right, where famous rock star deaths such as Jeff Buckley and Mark Bolan were restaged as fashion shoots. Oh no! Right? Yes, with a bit of pretentious prose to go along with it. And I, ha- as features editor, this was imposed on me to sort of make this happen. I had to make the phone call to clear it with Roland Bolan. Oh and I no! Felt, I felt such a cunt telling Fuck him, no. telling him it would be tasteful. Right? <laughs> I, I. Fucking, I hated myself in that moment because I knew it was going to be horrible and it was fucking horrible. Also, the glooms kept over commissioning and spiking articles, which, you know, you, as, as journalists, we, we oh, know yeah. how fucking annoying that is. Um, it's, and it's hugely unprofessional. There was this, this series of city guides they were doing, and I, I went to Liverpool to do one with Lady Tron, which was fucking great. They, you know, you know really showed me amazing stuff around Liverpool. And, you know, Bang just never ran it, which is such a waste of everyone's time and mm. very embarrassing for me, you know. Yeah. But I would say, you know, despite all of that, despite the editor's constant interference and dicking around, right, we, we, we did manage to sneak out a few great things in, in the mag. There's there's some work, mine and by other people, that I'm proud of. Um, I'd say probably the best thing that came of it for me, though, was that I was sat next to this lugubrious northern guy called John Doran, um, yeah who was the reviews editor and we became really close mates and he's now for those who don't know one of the editors of the quietus yeah. and, and a brilliant author and i probably never met him if it wasn't for bang but um anyway after, after i'd been there for six months um the gloom brothers called me in for this sort of appraisal meeting you know you get sort of hr kind of thing and um they totally gaslit me it was an obvious case of workplace bullying <laughs> What they did was they marked me out of five on various aspects of my work, you know, quality, communication, timekeeping, creativity, whatever. And they gave me naught out of five for the first one, then naught out of five on the second one, and then naught out of five on all of them, one by one. And at first, I was stunned. 
I was stunned, but I quickly realised exactly what they were doing. They sat and looked me in the face and did that, even though we all knew it was bullshit. And what it was really about was that I was a challenge to their authority because I knew about magazines and they knew nothing, right? Yeah. So it amounted to constructive dismissal, really. Yeah. And I remember going down to Wales one weekend and getting a call from John Doran, bless him, um, telling me that the Gloom Brothers were going to get rid of me. So I had to jump before I was pushed and right. I, I handed in my resignation on, on the Monday and... and and here's the thing. I mean, I'm so fucking glad I didn't quit my column with The Independent. I, I yeah. nearly did because I, I had this seemingly cushy new editorial job at Bang. Mm. But I, I kept both the jobs going just in case, even if it meant working a full day at the office and then dashing up to Nottingham or Birmingham to review a gig for the Indy. Yeah. And um, by the end of the year, Bang had gone out with a whimper anyway. It was down the fucking toilets. So I'd have been fucked if yeah. I'd quit my job. So, yeah, that that was my uh, view of it. Um, so, yes, yeah, Sarah, what do you remember about all this? We were so hyped about it, like, wasn't it? Like, a just kind of, yes, we're going to get to do what we fucking want. Because I was frustrated. I got there at five minutes to midnight for the maker, obviously, as, as, as uh, you know, podcasts pass him. Um, and I really thought that I'd missed my chance to kind of become a good writer mm. and and be among the people who, who were my mates who had been the maker kind of front line before and this was like oh i've just got this one last kind of chance to do a thing yeah. so i was really flattered and pleased to be asked obviously and it's like yeah this is you know you can you can write in the first person everything i was like oh, yeah, don't let me do that i'm <laughs> mad with power but um i thought oh you know this is this is great but i wasn't completely naive you know the the maker had fallen down around my ears and i i had taken all of that in and i knew what was what and i knew that the the landscape was very treacherous you know mm. but it was like yeah no this is going to be good and swells was on board and obviously i adored swells and we were really good friends the first editorial meeting which was like standing room only everyone crammed into this little and i swaggered down there i felt so confident that this was a great thing and i was in on the ground and it was and i did say to myself at the start like this is my last shot and if this doesn't work then i'm done and uh, you know and so it came to pass really i could have eked it out more but i really lost heart yeah. i mean i did speaking of like sp- spiking features i did a feature with the canadian content crew or was it collective one or the other which was basically peaches gonzalez feist mm. mocky and a few other kind of assorted eccentrics and it was great and they played at the la2 and i interviewed all of them so this was like 20 minutes or half an hour or something with like eight different artists and I had to crunch all of that down including like writing about the gig as well and then it got spiked just because they the Gloom Brothers changed their mind and just didn't want it anymore <sighs> it's like that's not a good reason no. to do this but um fortunately Tommy Udo um also may he rest he was on he was on board yeah. he was news editor wasn't he yeah this is a man who once apparently held a server hostage to get them to to pay him <laughs> Yeah, he like walked in with his mate and, and then walked out with the server and like and they had to go around oh with ransom. They had to go out uh, and pay cash to get it back. <laughs> it was that and realising that they were completely out of tune with all of us and just seeing how they treated people and seeing how it was going. And I just kind of went, nah, mm. I just lost wood completely for it. You could see from those early issues like how it could have been maybe. I mean, it's all quite scrappy and, you know, because it hadn't quite got its identity in order and maybe it could have done but what would have had to be different you know, everything <laughs> really mm. it became as well like a kind of expensive failure that mm. nervous industry people could point to and go you can't put money into magazines because look at that it yeah. became like yeah. a cautionary tale i think yeah and so and we'd had thought it would be 
daring and brilliant and, and freeing and uh, oh well would a new music magazine in 2003 ever worked out because it's it's getting to the point now where traditional media is just doesn't know what the fuck to do with itself yeah. well you know what um word magazine came along at pretty much exactly the same yes. time in fact we were worried it was going to blow us out of the water but it ended up being aimed at a different demographic mm. really but yeah i mean they managed to keep going for a, a good few years yeah. obviously in in the end that you know the realities the magazine market saw that one off as well but yeah i think it was an opportunity and something could have been done i'm not saying it would have lasted forever mm. but you know um it had the potential and one of the things that frustrates me about it so much is it was such a missed opportunity yeah. but the other thing hearing sarah say what she said there just brings it home to me that apart from being disappointed for myself and disappointed for the you know the missed opportunity of a potentially great music man is that i felt really guilty because i had talked it up because I'd had these preliminary meetings with the Gloom Brothers, mm. and and we we sat down and sort of thrashed it all out, and we and we we seemed to be on the same page about you know what what kind of mag this was going to be. So as far as I knew, had the green light to go ahead and tell people like Sarah and Taylor and Neil and various other writers, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing, guys. Come mm. over here. It'll be like like Melody Maker at its best, but a glossy monthly. So trust in me. And then when it came to it, I couldn't fulfill that promise because it was taken out of my hands and I just felt fucking awful for leading people on like that you know oh. what I mean and it was embarrassing for me it really was uh. you should put your mind at rest we knew it wasn't it wasn't your fault and you suffered more mm. you know as much as anyone and, and probably more so so you know just put that to rest yeah. um yeah it was such a fucking shame but i was kind of primed for it yeah. you've got to be happy and engaged and enthused on a certain level to be able to do it and i was just like I can't do it. But one of the last things that I did for it was um, I loved doing the City Guides because I was never very confident as an interviewer. And I did a decent feature with the Cardigans, but um, mm. the, the City Guides, where it's like a tight format where the questions, I could always relax with those where you know mm. what the questions are going to be and you don't have to, you know, get in a knot about it. And uh, we went to Mull, oh, yeah. at Mull Historical Society, which is one Ooh. one guy. Um, and so that he, he did the guide to Mull, which is tiny, tiny. It was... Uh, Tobamori, which is the pretty street overlooking the, the harbour with all the different coloured houses. Yeah. It was so beautiful. It was so absolutely flat, calm sea and just so peaceful. And we did all talk about what if we just fucked it all off and left it all behind and just came here and, <laughs> like, you know. it was It's the place that does that to you. And you that was kind of instrumental, I suppose, in my leaving London because yeah. it does nudge your head and go, you don't have to be there anymore. Yeah. There's a whole world out there. <laughs> yeah. So, and I wasn't surprised at all when it died on its ass after a year because that's what, what a lot of things did. So, chaps, as is the style with chart music, this is the time that we leave through the crates and we pull out an example of the music press on this week. And this time I've gone for the NME, July the 26th, 2003. Shall we nose through? Yes, please. Yeah, on the cover... James Skelly of the Coral in a pair of sunglasses with the words you must create in the top corner of one of the lenses shouting into a light bulb in the news Julian Casablancas has announced that the Strokes have one week left to finish recording their next LP Room on Fire they intend to immediately start on the mix down before nipping over to Japan for two shows at the Summer Sonic Festival and then get it ready for an autumn release. It eventually comes out at the end of October and spends a week at number two in the LP chart, held off number one by Life for Rent by Dido. 
The big news event of the month, Jack White's car crash, which left the index finger of his left hand all mangled up and that, is updated with a photo of his last appearance on stage when he made a guest appearance at the Science Farms gig in Detroit five days before. He's posted a statement on the band's website which concludes Apologies to those wishing to see my hand live soon enough, I'm sure. Now me and Meg can share war stories. I love when we share, like once there was a monkey and we shared the experience as children do. (laughs) For readers asking if the White Stripes will be able to play Reading and Leeds this year, the answer is yes, according to the organisers. They pull out a week later and are replaced by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, for fuck's sake, man. They were so embarrassing. Black (laughs) Rebel Motorcycle Club, right? Um, I always used to call them the Mean Cool Leather Gang. Because the fucking name, (laughs) you know, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, trying so hard. Um, I I remember, it might have been um, when this, uh, you know, thing broke that they were stepping in for the White Stripes. I remember uh, an interview with them when they said, our ambition has always been to headline the second stage at the Reading Festival. <laughs> and like, if, if right, if that was a wry, self-deprecating joke, fair play. But I don't think it was. You know, mm. that was the kind of height of their ambition. They were, oh, um, God, they were so I, naff. No, I I loved them. They were my bottom. They were, I, I fucking loved them. They're such a pure rock and roll band. And mm. also, they were, they were <laughs> instrumental in me upping and fucking off because I realised that I didn't care to try to convince people about this like I couldn't do it even now it's just like no look they were some of the best gigs I've ever seen it was it was great I loved them so much so people like me making fun of them bullied you out of music journalism basically (laughs) going back to the strokes um I mean there's so much I could say about them about how they kind of they were hugely important bringing this kind of rebirth of cool and sharpening everything up after Everybody was really slouching about. I think the, the post-Britpop comedown lasted about four years. Yeah. 97 to 2001. Well, this is the year that the Britpop documentary Live Forever comes out. So we people are being nostalgic about Britpop already, already in Fucking 2003. Hell. But I think what had happened was that, you know, everybody's listening to Moby and Travis and Coldplay and it's all very benign and slouchy music and baggy clothes Mm. and there's no edge to it, no sharpness. And the Strokes sort of carefully curated everything about them. The first thing anyone saw of them was a grainy black and white photo, a big photo of them sitting in a cafe in New York in the Mm. NME. And it's like, oh, right, we're going back to that. And, like, you know, these these sort of good-looking young guys in leather jackets and that, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, musically, that they were zoning in on things like Cheat Trick and the Ramones and Blondie and stuff and, and television and just that yeah. particular kind of American aesthetic of sharp, uptight, new way. Mm. So they're, they're really important in, in that way and, I, and they, they kind of changed everything. But the reason I wanted to go back to them was just because I have to say this one sentence. Julian Casablancas gave me a love bite in Nottingham. No! Yeah, Nottingham. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> Yeah, I went up to review them in, um, what was that venue? Was it just called the Heavenly Social? The, um, the Social? The Social, yeah, yeah. Which was the fucking also... best pub in Nottingham. Yeah. Friday night, that's where I'd be. I'd come straight out of work, straight over to the Social, not moving until three o'clock in the morning. My mate actually went to that gig, and after um, Julian Casablancas has had his way with you, <laughs> uh, my mate crashed with them. All right. Don't know if he got a love bite. 
but it might but, have got more. Yeah, no. yeah. What it was that uh, you know, I, I got chatting with them afterwards, and uh, somebody came and said, "Let me take a picture of you two. So uh, we stood there <laughs> posing, and while um, whoever it was was taking the picture, he leans in and gives me a hickey on my neck. It's like, oh, all right, fucking hell, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> Takes a while to really like engender a, a proper one, doesn't? Yeah, it? I mean, maybe How? I'm exaggerating. Yes. Uh, yeah, put it this way, I, I didn't exactly fight him off. Do you know what I mean? Because I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought in 18 years' time, I've got a really good story for a podcast. I don't even know what a podcast is yet, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> Did you have to wear a polo neck the next day, Simon? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went around looking like Harry Hill, like massive collar for you know, well, yeah, for a year. Yeah. Fran Healy of Travis has been spotted at Craven Cottage, recording crowd chants at half time of a friendly between Fulham and Celtic for the track Peace the Fuck Out on their forthcoming LP Twelve Memories. Despite getting rained on again when the sprinkler system got turned on while he was conducting the away support, he gets the track in the can and gets to meet Celtic manager Martin O'Neill, who's a big fan. That's a very big deal. Martin O'Neill is a very private man. When I used to um, hang around Forest uh, in the early 80s, I'd get everyone's autograph every day apart from Martin O'Neill. He wouldn't sign anything. Yeah. I-, I hope Fran Ely realised what a big deal it is to, to, to be recognised and liked by Martin O'Neill. Yeah, maybe it's a Nottingham Because he didn't like Robbie Williams, remember? <laughs> Mega Man of So Solid Crew has spoken about being interviewed by Cypriot police in the wake of the stabbing of Dizzy Rascal in Iron Napa at the beginning of the month and how well dischuffed he is that his collective get blamed for everything. The authorities wanted to get all the black DJs off the island because of the trouble, but I told them no one would come back, he says. Muse are celebrating the relative success of their latest single release, Stockholm Syndrome, one of the first in the world to be available as a download-only release. If all the downloads had translated into single sales, it would have easily gone top 15, says a band spokesperson. We estimate that in one week, 5,000 people have downloaded it. Oh, as many as that. (laughs) But over in America, plans are foot to introduce legislation that will make it easier to bring criminal charges against people who are sharing music online, with prison sentences of up to five years being threatened. Lock them up. Courtney Love has signed a publishing deal with Tokyo Pop Incorporated to produce a manga series based on whole songs called Princess I. It's about a smart and talented yet controversial princess who is exiled to Tokyo with nothing but a heart-shaped box. Oh, we, yeah, think about it, man. Where she makes a living as a rock star and falls in love with a sensitive muso called Kent who looks <laughs> suspiciously like Kurt Cobain. The first of three novels eventually come out in the summer of 2004. Happier news for the polyphonic spree. One of their robes that was stolen in a gig in Northampton has been returned, freshly laundered and ironed. We want to thank the good people of Northampton, says a band spokesperson. It's stolen by the Gloom Brothers, yeah. Mm. Dancing around in weird polyphonic cosplay. <laughs> that story about the polyphonic spree and um, um, Moby's fanny-related uh, story, that got twice as many column inches about the one about Dizzy Rascal getting stabbed. So, For fuck's yeah. sake. 
There we Dizzy go. Dizzy Rascal was amazing around this time, by the way. Obviously, you know, the album and all that, blah, blah, blah. But I caught him live at Fabric in London. And mm. he was doing just like a sort of freestyle rap battle with, you know, a few other people and just improvising. And it just absolutely force of nature. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. I, I mean, I like his records, but just, just how he was on the microphone. No fucking backing, no no beats, nothing. Just Just going for it. It's phenomenal, really was. In the interview section, well, Damon Dash, the co-founder of the Rockefeller Empire, is quizzed about his latest project, the relaunching of Victoria Beckham's career. He said he didn't know her from an hole in his arse when he was introduced to her by Naomi Campbell, but he likes her attitude and sense of humour. He doesn't give a toss at a career as nosedive in the UK because he knows how strong his music is. And he also thinks that David Beckham has got a definite hip-hop plan and he's got his hip-hop dress game down. The enemy has decided that Glasgow is the new centre of music this week, but they can only find two bands to lump into a feature. (laughs) The newly signed Franz Ferdinand get a quarter of a page where we find out that the band was formed as a party when Alex Kapranos got into a fight with Nick McCarthy when the latter nicked the former's bottle of vodka. They get round the licensing laws at their warehouse gigs by charging a quid for a raffle ticket which automatically wins a bottle of beer and their ambition is to make the world forget about that archduke that got shot in 1914. Meanwhile, dogs die in hot cars get asked about their name, how they feel about getting called the new proclaimers, and very little else. Alex Needham nips down to Raymond's review bar in Soho and waits for Alison Goldfrapp to finish having her photo taken before she gives him a guided tour of Soho. She says that the review bar was the site of one of Goldfrapp's first gigs. She used to work at Agent Provocateur and had to deal with men in raincoats having a wank. And she only does drugs at home these days. Sensible. Can we just clear something up in case anyone's still wondering... I am not Alex Needham. <laughs> Rich Pelly links up with the next Eurodance sensation, Junior Senior. They tell him that they can't understand why Danish bacon is so popular over here, as it's no different from anyone else's slices of pig. They're not impressed with the Danish pastries they've tried in London. They hate being compared to Aqua, Wigfield and DJ Otzer, and they're glad that Denmark voted to reject the Euro. Imran Ahmed drops in on the Morrison Hotel in Dublin for three whole pages interviewing the Coral, which gets mashed into an A to Z. We learn that James Skelly has been helping his granddad put some paving stones in his back garden. He doesn't have a mobile phone because they get on his tits. And he thinks Chris Tarrant is a fucking cunt for grabbing him by the scruff of the neck when he puts his foot on a chair that had Mr. Tizwaz's jacket on while they were waiting to be interviewed by Jonathan Ross. If I see Chris Tarrant again, I'd have a shit on his foot, he says. <laughs> This week's singles page is handled by a pool of Mark Beaumont, Chrissy Morrison and Rob Fitzpatrick. And the single of the week is No Not Now by Hot Hot Heat. This is proof that they were not just a flash in the post-rapture punk funk pan and allows them to brush off those unwelcome cure comparisons, says Morrison. It'll have you buying late new wave power pop in bulk and claiming that XTC have always been your favourite band. Why don't you just buy an XTC single then? (laughs) 
If this single was by a trio of hydraulic Mediterranean bimbos called the Ibiza Bandidos, you'd pay to have them throttled in their beds, says Beaumont of Rhythm Bandits by Junior Senior. Instead, it's by two chancing-it dockers dressed like a blind-run DMC and is therefore brilliant. Since 1982, over 20 million people have died of AIDS, reads the cover of Starter Fire by Radio 4, in case you get so caught up in the baggy beats and angling guitars that you miss the lyrical message that could save your life, says Morrison. If all government health warnings sounded like this, there'd be no disease. (laughs) But it's a coat down for In Love by Lisa Mafia. While her career so far has been spent attempting to convince us what a tough old bird she is, the rose among so solid thorns has given up her guns for chocolates and a table for two. But unfortunately, along with her heart, she's also lost her cool, states Morrison. Lisa, if you came round to our door singing this, we'd set Dizzy Rascal on you. Hideout by fuck sounds like the strokes chasing the wedding present on a knackered jogging machine. You were the last high by the dandy Warhols is like the mid-80s electro-melodics of New Order at their tranquil loveliest. And if Noel Gallagher had stretched himself a little further than simply hammering the arse out of the uninteresting end of the Beatles catalogue, he might have come up with Morning Wonder by the Hiss, according to Rob Fitzpatrick. Ooh, fucking it's safe to slag off Oasis now. We're in a new yeah. era. They changed their mind on that, though, didn't they? Yeah. And crawling back up the Gallagher arsehole <laughs> pretty soon. Yeah. In the LP review section, the main review is given over to Take Them On On Your Own by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. And James Oldham reckons it's a sensational album for many reasons. A fearsome confirmation that music can still act as a radicalised form of protest. The sonics are so full and heavy they make the yeah, yeah, yeahs sound like leaves being blown down a street take them on on your own is a masterpiece you should get hold of it as soon as possible nine out of ten right on mondo generator another queens of the stone age spin-off project have put out their second lp a drug problem that never existed and barry nicholson is impressed this record may not be as wild-eyed and rabid as 2000's Cocaine Rodeo, but it's loaded with more illicit sex, insanity and glam-punk brilliance than you can shake Satan's pitchfork at. 7 out of 10. But it's a mild coat down for Truly She Is None Other by Holly Go Lightly. If it came bursting out of some crackly 10-inch piece of vinyl you bought for too much money on eBay, you'd think it was incredible. But it was made in 2003 and, as such, can only ever be really quite good, says Rob Fitzpatrick. 6 out of 10. The Forever Changes concert by Love could well be the perfect record, according to James Jam. Longview are dismissed as sad Chester middleweights by Tim Wilde and their debut LP Mercury is the sound of a great band who have had all their interesting edges knocked off. And Rob Fitzpatrick announces that Killing Joke by Killing Joke with Dave Grohl on drums is, after the latest Jane's Addiction release, another comeback record that isn't embarrassing rubbish. In the gig guide, 
David could have seen Junior Senior at the Mean Fiddler, Sex Maniacs at Highbury Corner Garage, Roachford at Oldgate Each Spitz, or Cunts at the Brixton Windmill. <laughs> but definitely didn't. I mean, fucking hell, we've already discussed whether David would have seen Panties in 1978. <laughs> That's hell of a double bill, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Cunts and panties together at last. Yes. Mr. Sex in between them. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor could have seen Funeral for a Friend at the Birmingham Academy 2 and fuck all else. Neil could have seen the Bobs at the Coventry Coliseum or gone to Wolverhampton to see Marina Topley Bird at the Little Civic. Sarah could have seen Harmar Superstar at the Leeds Cockpit, yes. Shed 7 at the Hull Wellington, the motherfuckers at Sheffield Grapes, <laughs> or dogs dying hot cars at the Sheffield Boardwalk. Why didn't they put the motherfuckers and the cunts together? <laughs> uh, just let them fight it out. This would have been and fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a golden age for band names that, that yeah. aren't particularly asked about going on top of the pubs. Yeah, I think fuck buttons were around that time as well, weren't they? Yeah. Al could have seen Jesse Sykes and the Sweet Hereafter at the Maze, or gone to Derby to see Ron Sexsmith at the Nerve Centre, and Simon could have seen Rocket Science at the Cardiff Barfly, Funky Monkey at the Barfly, and Miss Black America at Club Evil Bach. In the letters page, Alex Needham is in the chair this week. I wonder if he ever got a protest saying, you that bloke who writes all that shit about sex. <laughs> and, and, and be on sex and shopping talking bollocks. Yeah, and how do you wear half a condom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you sort of sitting there confused like that guy Gomar bloke on, you know, the BBC News channel? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the main topic of conversation is the darkness and their appearance at tea in the park. After their tequila slammer of a set, I was amazed to hear some moaning minis complaining that they obviously weren't real, didn't mean it, and had donned the leotards as a marketing gimmick. Get to fuck, writes James McTavish of Edinburgh. Who gives a galloping shit? People get so hung up on authenticity, but sorry, when the sun's shining and the lager's flowing, I want to be entertained. The darkness rock. And that's what matters. Yes, I get the joke, but it's just not funny, counters Daniel Whelan via email. Never before has one band managed to steal all the Manic's crap points without any of the good ones. If we all ignore them, they'll go away and we'll never have to look at their bad teeth again. If I wanted to watch some rubbish novelty tribute band, I'd get a fucking season ticket for stars in their eyes, says Steve-O via email. I have written to Michael Evis demanding one two hundredth of my Glastonbury ticket price back for waking me up on Friday morning with their squealing comedy shit. Simon, I remember when we were arguing the toss on internet forums back in 2003. The, the darkness was a hill you were prepared to die on two thousand times. Listen, man, that band were the band who were giving me life more than anyone in that era. And I mm. I kind of discovered them. I'm going to give myself credit for that. Ooh. What happened was, um, back in spring 2001, um, a woman I knew called Valerie Gerrimond, who was the promoter of a night called The Fan Club that happened at the Verge in Kentish Town, urged me to check out this new band she was putting on with what I thought was a shit gothic-sounding name. Mm. Um, so I, I went along a bit reluctantly, but I was absolutely blown away. And I, I wrote 
wrote their first ever live review in the Independent on Sunday. In this review, I've got a little quote. I described them as being a histrionic, high-camp heavy metal band, best described as a gay ACDC. Gay ACDC, if you will. <laughs> I mean, ACDC is already a sort of gay name. Yes. Fronted by a young Freddie Mercury. Hugely entertaining, regardless of their exact location on the irony to seriousness scale mm. so that's what i wrote and i remember them treating this small pub gig like it was wembley and i love that about <laughs> them i mean justin hawkins was getting a roadie to give him a piggyback around the room and moving through the you know fairly sparse crowd high-fiving everyone as he played guitar <laughs> and i loved that i mean their music was just shameless obviously we've all heard it but fucking joyful fist in the air fun mm. i mean the songs are brilliant and they fucking genuinely rocked and also, right, they put a trestle table with loads of pizza slices at the back of the room so um, <laughs> for everyone to help themselves. So that's a tip for up-and-coming bands. If you want to get audiences and critics on site, give them pizza. Yeah, um, or, or a buffet, at least. Yeah, yeah so, something like a buffet. It was really, really a nice touch. And, um, and send so, Neil along to review the buffet. Yeah, and yeah, oh, well, you've got to put crisps out if Neil's there. Mm. Yeah, fucking hell. Um and yeah, and and uh, well, whether he'll touch your sandwiches is really the mark of definitely. But the darkness—they they were just so unlike anything else that was around. And and I emailed absolutely everyone in the music industry who I had in my email contacts list, and just said, "You have to see this band." And I'm genuinely not taking credit for getting them signed, but I did everything I could to help with the kind of buzz that mm. was naturally growing around them and we we became good mates we worked together a lot i even dj'd several of their gigs and after shows and birthdays and it was just such a pleasure and a joy to watch this band who i championed when they were at pub level making it all the way to brit awards and headlining mm. festivals and playing wembley and all that and the fact that some boring bastard indie kids who wrote for the enemy or <laughs> read the enemy didn't like them only made me love them more you know yeah and when the darkness became too big to ignore and you've mentioned the glastonbury thing there they, they were just this reality that the enemy couldn't sort of like laugh off anymore conor mcnicholas who was the editor of enemy at the time approached justin hawkins at glastonbury to beg him for forgiveness um <laughs> to beg him to forgive enemy and to give them an interview and justin made him literally get on his knees backstage at glastonbury no. and grovel and he did it yeah yeah oh. i fucking love that thing with connor is right and he was a weird one he he wasn't from enemy world he wasn't immersed in indie rock and uh, he was a dance music journalist he'd been at ministry and mix mag and music mm. and things like that and you know his job after the enemy was he went to be a motoring journalist um right he, he actually looked like one of the strokes I, and i i liked him despite myself because i was the last japanese soldier in the jungle you know i was still fighting yeah. the war even though melody maker was long gone so i hated enemy on principle uh, yeah. and and i was also at odds with what it was doing and i i was always taking pot shots enemy from my Sunday newspaper bunker and then mm. because um, enemy at that time and I don't know um, maybe it's sort of partly come across in this issue and maybe it's not a, a, a good example of it but it, it was fixated on the idea of cool specifically this kind of hipster understanding of cool mm. that was being formed in Hoxton and also Williamsburg and the yeah. enemy was also enthralled to this really reductive like Jack Daniels swilling Keith Richards idolizing yeah. idea of rock and roll mm. you know which I found kind of embarrassing and they were glorifying that whole smackhead culture that surrounded the libertines as well you know yeah 
Yeah. And um, and throughout that decade, they they were just too keen to provide a platform for all those tedious posh boys and girls like Razor Light and Florence the Machine and Jamie T and Jack Pinate and Kate yeah. Nash and all that lot. Basically, pulling up the castle drawbridge and making pop into an upper class playground. I I hated that. Mm. And the other thing that was going on in the enemy at that time, it was the age of advertorial. I don't don't know if you saw any examples of this. Did you? Well, basically, right, they saw no contradiction between naming a tour the Rock and Roll Riot Tour, right, Mm. an enemy sponsored tour, and having it sponsored by O2 and Samsung. Yes. For fuck's sake. And it it was during Connor's six-year reign, enemy, that NME became this brand. It was like a logo. The enemy, it wasn't so much a magazine anymore. And they, they were always fortunate. I think David Stubbs has mentioned this before that, you know, NME had this nice blocky logo that, yeah. that looks good on a t shirt or a badge or whatever. So it became this brand. So there was a website. There was the NME Awards came back. There were these package tours. There were sponsorship tie ins with Shockwaves hairspray and all these other <laughs> yes. lifestyle brands. Rock and they, and they, roll. they were. Yeah, and they were selling T-shirts th- under the enemy banner, you know, the band T-shirts, not enemy T-shirts. They were selling tickets for gigs. It was just this ugly corporate kind of lifestyle monstrosity. But they must have been doing something right because the weird thing was, despite the fact that the music press was having its ass kicked by new forces at this time, um, sales of the enemy actually went up slightly under Connor's reign. Right. And, um, uh, when, whenever I ran into him in person, he was nice to me, despite all my sniping and slagging. Mm. And I've got to say, I've actually got a sneaking amount of respect for him that Justin Hawkins says, get down on your knees. And he fucking did it. So yeah. fair play to him. When I read that Nathan from the Kings of Leon said, I'd rather have a son in a band than a daughter that's at the club trying to get with the guy in the band in gosh. NME, I couldn't gosh darn believe it, writes Condoleezza Rice's fallopian tube via email. Here I was all this hair time thinking that girls could actually be in bands ourselves instead of just being mere groupies. It's so refreshing in 2003 to see such a forward-thinking band who sound and look like a parody of good old rehashed 70s rock cliches. Hayden wants to know who Cosmic Rough Riders think they are. James DeMello points out that the Coral's latest single is a direct nick of You Like Me Too Much by the Beatles. And Princess Fairy thanks the enemy for the cover-mounted condoms in an issue last month as her boyfriend gave her her first double orgasm with them. <laughs> 52 pages, pound forty. I never knew there was so little in it. It's a very patchy thing the enemy by this time Mm. gone down in size gone down in pagination the articles are bitty as fuck and you you go through it and you think well this is nicely laid out and everything but you feel so sorry for the people writing in it and so sorry for the bands and artists who are being covered in it because it's proper nm heat by this time Mm. heat did so much damage to the music press yeah there were a lot of listicles in the enemy around this time and one of their most sort of totemic ones was the coolest that they they publish every now and then was like Mm. the 50 coolest people in the world and it always seemed to be like Karen O from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's at number one. And yeah. it was all those people that were eventually sort of collated in the book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, about that whole cocaine New York scene of, of the noughties. And mm. yeah, it, it just seemed like they were all kissing America's ass in a way that 10 years earlier, I guess Melody Maker was kissing sort of America's grungy ass, you know. Mm. But yeah, it was, it was all sort of fixated on, on these indie celeb personalities and what they were up to. Pop stars at this time are celebrities who happen to make music 
And the way they keep themselves famous is by making music and putting it out every now and then. But that's not their real job anymore. Their real job is to be somebody famous. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Smash Hits was was great in its in its pomp, but um, I suppose it has a lot to answer for in terms of the influence of, of format in that way. Mm. But a lot of the joy had gone out of it, I guess. It's like you know, a list. I I love you know, I love a good list. I love like the daftness that you can put into these things. But you've got to get it right. It's such a such a dicey thing. And when it's like transparently chasing after audiences. Yeah. I mean, we all know how that goes. You know, it's it's when you're chasing after people who aren't there or you're pandering to people who realise that you're pandering to them, it's, yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously the maker did this as well. It's like putting, like, non-music people on the cover or whatever. It's like, hang on. Zoe what? Ball or whatever, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like a sort of weird category error that's going on. It's like, but that's not a, what, you know, mm. like the sex issue and stuff with, like, Kelly Brook. I interviewed yeah. Kelly Brook, actually. She was a sweetheart. She didn't know what she was doing there either. Mm. She was really sweet because she was quite dim, but she was really she was really self aware about it, <laughs> which was so endearing. She was kind of like, "Well, I don't know what I don't know why you want to interview me for this, but okay, you know, yeah, because it was all the same to her." But yeah, culturally, it was all starting to get a little bit of a mishmash that that was a bit queasy. I mean, the last magazine job I had was a few years ago. I was working for a celebrity magazine, and my job was to sit on the Associated Press wires, as soon as a news item came up, jump on it, cut and paste it, amend it just a little bit, give it a title that was SEO friendly Mm. and try and get it out before everybody else did. Yeah. And we're seeing the beginning of this here. Everything's celebrity related. You're not really learning much about the bands or the artists. And the people writing it aren't learning how to be proper journalists because they're not being given the space to do that. I mean, I did I did a, a couple of days at Heat online, and that was just weird. It was just because I did all kinds of bits and bobs of work around this time. I, I did do some some odd bits of music stuff subsequently. I did some stuff for like the BBC music website, and yeah. and then I lost any inclination to do that as well. But um, yeah, I I was never going to like pivot to do celebrity stuff because it was just too odd. Yeah, but it was starting to the walls were kind of closing in a bit, and it was starting to become this kind of homogenous thing. Yeah. It's all meant to be zingy and fun and exciting, and you don't feel that. It's quite hard to fake it, you know. Yeah. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at. 6am with breakfast then it's Kilroy house call in the country where assorted TV presenters tell the unemployed pensioners kids on their six week holiday and anybody else stuck at home watching BBC One on a weekday morning about what houses they should be buying then it's garden invaders house invaders trading treasures the proto flog it passport to the sun the docu-soap about British people in Majorca. Then it's BBC News, regional news in your area, neighbours, cash in the attic, diagnosis murder, more news, more regional news in your area. Then it's the tweenies, Arthur, Rugrats, the Basil Brush show, the film show Call the Shots, a repeat of Neighbours, then the six o'clock news, regional news in your area again, and they've just finished a repeat of the episode of Open All Hours, where Granville minds the shop while Arkwright goes to a funeral. BBC Two starts at 6.30am with Fimbles, The Adventures of Marco and Gina, Sheep, the Ovine-centric cartoon series, Then You Get Meh, the interactive drama series about yous running an internet radio station, followed by Round the Twist, News Round, 
Tom and Jerry kids and the role reversal reality show Rule the School, where a group of kids educate a pool of young teachers. After a dragon interrupts an important baseball game in the Scooby and Scrappy show, It's Smart, <laughs> the shaking take heart, which teaches the youth how to make a personalised mobile phone holder. Then it's Mona the Vampire, Tweenies, possibly the episode where they do their own episode of Top of the Pops and one of them imitates Jimmy Savile, which oh, received yeah. 213 complaints <laughs> when it was accidentally repeated in 2013. <gasps> oh my God. And Clifford the Big Red Dog. After Miss Hooley does something for the oldens by organising a fish supper in Balamore, it's Rubber Dubbers, CBB's Birthdays and a Laurel and Hardy double bill. After the business show Working Lunch, we get to look at the Orkneys and Pembrokeshire in this land before being whipped over to Ascot for the racing, hosted by Willie Carson and fucking Bunte. That's followed by Escape to the Country, Ready Steady Cook, The Weakest Link, the episode of The Simpsons with Elton John in it, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Robot Wars Extreme, and they've just started the Royal Horticultural Society Flower Show at Tatton Park with Monty Don and Charlie Dimmock. ITV kicks off at 6am with GMTV, followed by Trisha, This Morning and Loose Women. After the lunchtime news and regional news in your area, it's Under One Roof, a repeat of Quince, Yes Chef, more news, more regional news in your area, then the kids show Squeak, followed by Hey Arnold, Rescue Robots, My Parents Are Aliens, Boot Sale Challenge, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Classic, i.e. a repeat. Then it's regional news in your area, the ITV Evening News, Emmerdale, and they've just started Coronation Street. Channel 4 commences with a double bill of the Jim Henson Alien on Earth kids programme, The Hoobs, followed by Rise, Pop World, a repeat of last night's Big Brother's Little Brother, then a repeat of last night's Big Brother. Then it's over to Edge Baston for the second day of the first test between England and South Africa, which runs all the way to 6.15. Then it's Hollyoaks, Channel 4 News, and they've just started highlights for the first day of the Rally Deutschland in the World Rally Championship. Channel 5? Nah, who gives a toss? <laughs> Fucking hell, that is a packed television schedule and a very familiar television schedule. There's not much difference between now and then, is there? A lot of familiar names there, like, you know, Loose Women and so on. Yeah. But I don't think I was watching any of that. I just wasn't watching TV around this time. Maybe Pop World, I thought, I don't know if that was Simon Amstel's era, but I thought he was really good. Mm. And, and Mikita Oliver as well. I thought they were great. Yeah. On there. And it was, it was one of those shows that was aimed at kids but when it was shown on a sunday morning it was just great hungover viewing for people yeah. being out at a nightclub and yeah I, I i thought it was a good show i used to work with the guy who was the jimmy savile tweenie no <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's very just a, a very tall man so he did uh he, he did some writing but he also did some acting and uh yeah so he was on the front cover of the sun 
when that whole <laughs> scandal broke in his, you know, he's very sort of tall and lanky with the big head on. He just thought it was, the whole thing was quite hilarious because nobody knew it was him. You know, no. he didn't actually get tracked down. He didn't have people. So he didn't get cancelled through no fault of his own. It was- so he didn't get tracked down like the sex teletubber. <laughs> no, fortunately. I mean, we might have, you know, because I was like in an office with him. We could have had the paps at the door and everything, yeah. but fortunately we didn't. So uh- Mention of um, Rescue Robot and um, Robot Wars Extreme reminded me. Mm. I haven't told you about the third job I was doing in 2003, which was uh, running my club night. Ooh. Yeah, I was running um, a night called Stay Beautiful. It'd been going a couple of years. Um, it ended up lasting for 10 years in London and another five in Brighton. And what it was, it was basically a, a place, a home for a subculture that didn't really have a name, but was out there and existed. And mm. obviously Stay Beautiful is named after a Manic Street Preacher's song. So it's partly coming from that kind of um, subculture of, of, you know, Richie Edwards fans, but also people who are into Hole and Placebo and maybe Manson with a S-U-N mm. and maybe bands like Kanicki and, and kind of new glam bands like Rachel Stamp and King Adora and all of this. So basically there was this tribe of people who didn't have a name, but you'd see them. They wear a lot of eyeliner and glitter and leopard and feather boas and all that. And uh, they would coalesce around certain bands and certain gigs, but there were no club nights for them. And I decided just to sort of do a night that brought this together. And it ended up becoming this kind of self-perpetuating little tribe to itself. It, it, mm. it really was its own its own scene. And um, uh, the thing is, um, you know, I, was, I was running with, with, with my then girlfriend and one of my best mates. And we kept having to move from one venue to another. We could never get a weekend night to start off with. We were fucking running on a Monday, you know, in, in London, which oh. wasn't, wasn't ideal. Then then Wednesday. Eventually we got Friday in uh, Islington, but uh, we got booted out of there. Um, we ended up going to this place in London Bridge. It was called Club Wicked. Um, it was previously known as Cynthia's Robotic Bar. Oh, right. yes. yes. I've been yeah. there. I'm, I bet you have, because I'm coming on to the... <laughs> I'm coming on to exactly why I think you might have been there. <laughs> so uh, it was in Tooley Street in the underpass beneath London Bridge. Yeah. And it had an actual robot yes. that would serve you cocktails. This metal Mickey type thing mm. called Cynthia and another one called <laughs> Rastus. Cynthia and Rastus, the robots. They were a bit shit. I never actually got them successfully to pour me a drink, but they were there anyway. But it was run by this guy. He was a former police officer called Brian Sheridan. And... Uh, uh, he was um, a sort of fetish lord, and um, we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for when we got involved <laughs> in this in this venue. I found a newspaper story about what went on there. Basically, around the time that we moved in there and started doing Stay Beautiful once a month, they um, that this is Brian Sheridan and his wife Lady Caroline, a writer of erotic fiction. I'm <laughs> going to come on to that. Um, they were trying to get a license for Cynthia's or Club Wicked, as they renamed it, to become a live sex club where people could just go and have sex in public in front of other people. Mm. You know, that that was kind of unprecedented in London and there were all <laughs> kinds of legal obstacles to it. And they were trying <laughs> to find a workaround where you could pay 25 quid to be a member and it becomes a private club and stuff like that. But I've, I found um, a, a newspaper story about all of this and about what they were trying to do. I'm going to read it out now. It goes, Former police officer Brian Sheridan, known as the General, due to his penchant for military uniforms, and his wife, Lady Caroline, a writer of erotic fiction, say that their arrival in SE1 was quite deliberate and well-researched. We wanted a fast and up-and-coming area with easy access to the city, with no or minimal competition. The Sheridans are well-known figures on the fetish scene, where opinions are divided about their business style and personal tastes. Mm. Brian, a self-styled World War II historian, says that <laughs> World War II uniforms are his fetish. 
In my opinion, the World War II German uniforms uh. are highly glamorous <laughs> and erotic, he wrote in response to criticisms on a London fetish message board. Flyers for previous promotions have featured the couple in full SS uniform. <laughs> Fancy uh, that, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a quote from him now. Uh, we are not Nazis or fascists, says Brian Sheridan, who goes on to add that the British have committed more terrible atrocities than anyone over the last 1,000 years. We make the Nazis look like they're in kindergarten. <laughs> right, so that, that gives you an idea of, of you know, that the, these people... They're never interested in dressing up like the home guard, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. Exactly, exactly. So I went there for a business meeting just to try and, try and sort of, um, you know, um, pin down what our deal was going to be. And I went in the middle of the afternoon, um, probably on a weekday, and I saw someone strapped to an apparatus getting their bare arse spanked <laughs> with a paddle by a man in a latex Nazi stormtrooper outfit and that was Brian Sheridan the general what on his dinner hour well they just helped they, they just had stuff going on in yeah in the daytime and I think it's because they were so close to the city and uh, you know quite quite a lot of the people who went there were sort of quite well to do professionals mm. and the thing is right most places where Stay Beautiful had happened we were the freaky wild ones yeah. the club the crowd was quite our, our crowd was very LGBTQ friendly and um, you know very dressed up very glam very punk at Club Wicked we were the squares we yeah. were the prudes you know and um what ended up happening because we we had a really good run there it wasn't a long run but we had a load of really good nights so um we had things like like peaches uh, the aforementioned peaches came to dj for us one time and that wow. was a real coup we had sylvain sylvain for the new york dolls bless him r.i.p um, it was oh that was a fucking weird one because uh, he knew he was meant to be doing an hour and he only brought 30 minutes worth of songs. And I didn't know that. And I'm stood next to him just making sure nothing's going wrong. With about 30 seconds left on his last song, he says, right, well, that's it. I've got no more. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I had to suddenly leap into my record box and just grab something New Yorky, like a Blondie record, mm. stick it on. And from then on, it was amazing. Because what he did was he would take the microphone and I would sort of like put on sort of New York punk type records. And, and he would just sort of narrate them and say, oh, yeah, well, I remember walking down to 53rd and 3rd where I first met johnny ramone and this kind of stuff (laughs) and it ended up being this amazing dj set and we had mira from lady tron and um, i think what it was was we were quite close to the south bank center and our run there coincided with the meltdown festival and they had a really forward-looking booker called glenn max and a lot of these bands like like the new york dollars were playing there and then they would come over and dj for us um and it was a lovely venue this kind of chrome and mirror plated well, dungeon, really, cavern and under, mm. under London Bridge. I loved it, but the reason it came to an end was because of Brian Sheridan trying to get this license for it to be a live sex club. Yeah. And there was pushback, not f- just from the local police, but from Southwark Cathedral, which is, <laughs> if, if you know where it is, it's, it's right at, at one end of London Bridge, yeah. it's just right there. The Dean of Southwark Cathedral, the very Reverend Colin Slee, started getting involved in the campaign to have Wicked shut down. And it was very difficult for the police or anyone to shut it down under existing laws because it was all a bit vague. The only law that they could really use, there was something from 250 years earlier called the Disorderly Houses Act. Right. I mean, it was a pretty fucking disorderly house to be... There's a lot of disorder going on in that house. (laughs) But um, uh, there was another... um, uh, when the scandal was going on, there was an, there was a, a story in, in the uh, 
Evening Standard from a woman called Alexa Balakaya, who who did that thing. Of, she wrote that kind of I made my excuses and yes. left kind of article. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so here's a bit. She goes, um, as my taxi drew up in Tooley Street, I thank goodness that my outfit, skin-tight black PVC cat suit, killer heels and a buckled leather neck strap was not too outré. <laughs> and then she meets um, uh, um, Caroline Sheridan, the wife of, uh, uh, of the general. And, and it's, tonight she was Lady Caroline and wearing an outrageous blonde wig and studded leather straps that displayed her ample naked breasts and so on and basically just sort of titillating the the readership of of the standard in a way that possibly contributed to the eventual Mm. decision of uh, a a hearing at Southwark Town Hall to shut Wicked down and then make Stay Beautiful homeless sadly but it was it was a ride it was a fucking wild ride while we were there anyway it was so did you ever go there then I did a few interviews there it was always a good venue to interview and do photo shoots yeah I I didn't partake no, alright they all say that I didn't have <laughs> sex with anybody while loads of people watched you weren't wanked off by a robot not that time anyway no no, no yeah no. right <laughs> fucking hell the, the other thing I've just remembered about this and I, I was so proud of our crowd for this is that um, we happened to be doing our night while that fucking bell end David Blaine was hanging in a perspex cube mm. from a crane do you remember this he was like living in a perspex yes. cube with no food or anything for however long it was um near london bridge mm. and um when it was like 3 a.m and our crowd were kicked out they all just went along there with fucking big Macs and burger kings like waving them out and, going, ah, and stuff like that and I, <laughs> I just thought i love you guys <laughs> so me dears i do believe the table has been laid for this episode of top of the pops let's reconvene tomorrow for part two of this episode of chom is it so interesting until then, thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome. God bless you, Sarah B. God bless me. My name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. Great big Hello, my name is Pete Ellison. This is Dave Cribb. Hello, and we do a podcast called Friends with Friends, as you might have guessed from the music that's playing underneath, uh, which is a sort of lo-fi rendition of the Friends theme tune for rights reasons. We get a different guest on every week on our podcast to talk about their favourite episode of Friends. And we look through in excruciating detail. We pick through levels of plots like no one has ever done before. So if you like Friends or just listening to people talking, which are both valid activities, do look us up on the old podcast app and that. Friends with friends and we're on Twitter at friends WF.